What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Uh, It's a little different it's a little different version of the Josh Marshall podcast. Um, I, I don't know how much it's going to seem that way for listeners, but this is our first remote version of the podcast. Uh, my colleagues, David and Kate, uh, and I are doing this remotely. Uh, we're actually doing it with Zoom, which you might know is the sort of, uh, I guess, you know, soon to become very well known, uh, you know, video <laughs> conferencing. Uh, I actually saw I saw ads for it at LaGuardia Airport over the weekend, and um, I know their, their stocks are doing well, so That's the only them. stock that's doing well right now. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I'm almost wondering, I don't know exactly how distributed their system is, but I was, because um, just, just this morning, I was talking to my wife about um, basically some older relatives that might be helped by using Zoom just to stay in contact with people. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, uh, as I think everybody is hearing uh, for people who are elderly, you should stay in place. Right. You know, don't don't circulate. And I think, as we know, um, and this is especially for older people who may not, you know, get around a lot anyway, loneliness and isolation is an issue, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is human nature, um, and so I was I was sort of wondering whether, and again, this this sort of has to do with how distributed their setup, and I suspect it must be distributed to a significant degree. And for those kind of who aren't familiar with this kind of stuff, the question is, you know, do all Zoom stuff go through one kind of central, you know, central Zoom mm-hmm. server? In which case, it can get overwhelmed. Or is it more distributed, and they can kind of, you know, have half the country using using their system? Um, because this is going to become pretty pretty ubiquitous. You know, right. I mean, we have seen this just just stunning process over the last. Um, God, I think it's really only about forty eight hours that um, certainly it it gets more press when big elite universities closed down. But my right. sense is this is happening, you know, close to across the board now. And so the demand for these kind of services is going to be immense. So uh, let's not get too far uh, off track here. Let me, let me start by, you know, I do not have, we're every, everybody in our society is winging it at the moment. And I just realized as I started to do this, I do not have the Grady's cold brew script in front of me. I actually, me. I'm here for you, Josh, because I actually oh, have it. I have it pulled up on my computer. So let's take care of that, and then we'll, okay. we'll get you into wanna, some of the you news. You want to do it? I'll do the honors. Okay. Are you a do-it-yourselfer? A brew-it-yourselfer? Well, so is Grady's cold brew. Wait, is this? That's not the whole thing. Um, <laughs> let's let's you know we can let's we're all we're this all in this together. From quarantine, yeah. it's loose. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
Well, here's the thing. We don't. We we know what we're talking about. Greatest right. cold brew iced coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall podcast. Um, and look, it's it's uh, deliverable, which may if be there was, maybe right. even if more relevant ever, now than it if was. If there was in the ever past. a time, if there was ever a time not to go to the coffee shop, I guess this would be it, right? And, yeah, uh, to rely yeah, on really, your Grady's. Really. So uh, Grady's cold brew is uh, great. I've been drinking it forever, long before they became our sponsor. Uh, so it's it's you know check it out. It's it's really a great product, and they make what we're doing possible. It's Grady'sColdBrew.com is where you can order it. Um, and you, there's the offer code TPM that you get, a I think it's a 20% discount on your first order. You can also order it um, via Amazon. That's for next day delivery. And uh, in a lot of parts of the country, you can buy it in your local store. Now, in, and again, not, not even being kind of facetious about this, uh, I think everybody's sort of playing it by ear about, you know, how we're going to be, how people are going to be buying food and stuff like that. Yeah. In case you're wondering, I am legitimately in my apartment here in New York City, and those are my two dogs uh, losing, <laughs> losing their minds because someone uh, buzzed to uh, be let into the apartment. Right. We're anyway, doing it live. So, uh, Grady's, yeah, Grady's cold brew. Yes. So, obviously, a couple big stories that we're focusing on. This week and for today's episode, we had a series of primary elections last night, Super Tuesday 2.0, or as some people were calling it, Two wait, Super wait, wait, wait. Two I Tuesday. That was literally a delivery of Grady's cold brew ice cream. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. This is like legit. Plan this isn't just a, yeah, this is not an additional product placement. Okay, just sorry, a, David. A happy accident. So let's start. Yep. Uh, and obviously, the other big story is the coronavirus, which we're paying very close attention to and has already, you know, disrupted to some extent our our everyday lives, our business operations here at TPM. But let's start with the election and we'll we'll kind of weave in the coronavirus response uh, and get to that as well. But Kate, you and I were on last night covering the elections. We had a number of states that Joe Biden carried after a strong Super Tuesday showing last week. We had Missouri, Mississippi, two southern states that were basically poll closed calls for Biden, I want to say, um, where he received overwhelming support among black voters, something like 70 or 80 percent to Sanders support in the teens among among black voters. We had Michigan, which was the big prize of the night with a uh, hundred plus delegates at stake there. Wasn't quite a poll closed call, but I think maybe f- Five minutes Pretty after close, nine, yeah. five minutes after Pretty nine, we got a call. Like what was supposed to be the biggest, most nail biter contest of the night. Yeah. Tell us about some of the results. What what jumped out to you last night? Well, the reason that Michigan has loomed so large in the psyche of Bernie Sanders and his fans is because he pulled off an upset there in 2016. He was polling something like 21 points behind Hillary Clinton. He ends up winning by 1.5 points. So it's not like it super changed the delegate math. She was already, you know, way ahead by that point. But it did give him a narrative of upsetting the establishment you know everyone thought he was down and out of the race and you know he's still in it and um a lot of that victory was in some part due to a big groundswell of youth turnout that polls just didn't capture so this year you know that has kind of that state has been important to him and his Uh, mythos as being the expectation upsetter. So I think there was a lot of attention, especially there, coupled with the fact that it had 125 delegates to give up. Um, But, you know, I spoke to some people on the ground the week leading up to the primary, and they just 
felt that the state was really mirroring national trends. Um, They didn't really see it very ripe for an upset like last time, not least because Sanders seems to have lost some foundational support with the groups that always vote in the primary. So, you know, people who are like 60 to 80 have been Democrats their whole lives, always turn out, you know, and that group was just trending really, really hard for Joe Biden. And, you know, he had dipped in some other areas, like he's kind of losing strength with uh, more rural, less educated voters. So kind of the combination of that factors made people I talked to dismissive of the narrative that Michigan is going to be this big battle. Um, And yeah, that's what we ended up seeing. You know, uh, Biden carried it pretty handily and it came in the series of, you know, Mississippi, he won by massive like North Korea numbers and then Missouri, he (laughs) won big and then Michigan, not really a question. So the narrative, I guess if Sanders was looking for a you know, come back kids still in the fight narrative, at least the section of the night where most people were still awake did not deliver on right. that front. So wait, what was the, do we know Washington? I mean, when I went to sleep, it was very, it was very close, but Sanders had a, had a small lead. I was just going to say, I think that remains true today at about 12 PM Eastern when we're recording this. Mm-hmm. Um, Idaho oh, went wow, for Joe Biden um, and North Dakota went for Bernie Sanders. So Bernie did pull off a win in one state, which I guess, uh, you know, proves the Jim Clyburn point about shutting down the primary, or at least delays Jim Clyburn's, uh, you know, effort to basically call this done. He said if Bernie Sanders didn't win any states last night, that the DNC needs to cut off all the debates, basically wrap this thing up, throw all the support behind Biden. But I guess it wasn't quite a, a sweep in that sense. Yeah, it looks like in Washington, they're separated by 0.2% of the vote right now, Um, which is interesting because Sanders ran away with Washington in 2016, but that's also when they had a caucus system, which really favors him and his uber-devoted fans. So they went to a primary this year. And actually in 2016, they held a primary after the caucus, um, not for delegates, I guess just for fun. I don't really know. And Clinton ended up winning it by five points. So the change in the structure, which happened in Idaho, North Dakota, and Washington, was definitely, I think, seen as a sign of trouble for the Sanders cohort. And Kate, you were saying, is Washington an entirely mail-in ballot state? Does that mean there's no in-person voting whatsoever? Yeah, that's right. You can um, go in person to register the day of, but it was kind of crazy. The images out of Washington is just like long lines of cars and people just stick their hand out and drop their ballot into like a mailbox. Interesting. Thing. And obviously Washington mail it in properly. Yeah. Right. I hadn't I hadn't thought about this, but I, I guess that probably means that uh, Sanders had some significant advantage with early voting. I mean, how when can how early can you vote in their system? I obviously with mail it's a very different process, right. but I'm just wondering. I don't know the front end off the top of my head. I do know the back end is it only has to be postmarked by election day. So that was right. part of the reason that they were anticipating having a pretty lengthy ballot tabulation process. Right. So you could send it in to the, through the mail yesterday and maybe it gets there the next day or two days, depending on how far right. away you live. Right. Yeah. But Josh, you're definitely right. When they were seeing the counting the earliest um, ballots, you know, right after polls closed, they'd clearly like already been counting these ones that came in. I mean, you could tell how early it was because like, Bloomberg and Warren were polling in like the double digits, you know. Right, so. right, right. 
that's a pretty right. old vote at this point. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it was around 11.30, 11.45, there was already like 65% of the vote already counted, which is really quickly, especially right. you know, especially for a, a big state like that. So yeah. we didn't hear from Bernie Sanders last night. He was back home in Vermont, and both candidates canceled Election Day rallies, which were you know set to be held in front of a big room of supporters. Obviously, the coronavirus has, you know, complicated all of those plans. Uh, it's not a great idea to hold large gatherings of, you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people. We didn't right. hear from Bernie Sanders last night. We heard Biden address, I guess, mostly his staff, right? This was in mm-hmm. Philadelphia, kind of an empty, echoey room. It was sort of a weird, you know, the cameras, yeah. it's not like they panned out to the whole room so that you saw an empty space, but you could kind of hear just the absence of people of bodies in the room, which was kind of an, a striking, just a striking moment. Right. Uh, I mean, and he was speaking from the convention center in Philadelphia. Which, right. A big as place. Native, I can say it's a pretty, yeah, pretty spacious. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we haven't heard anything from Bernie Sanders today. The reporting yesterday indicated that he does plan on participating in this debate on Sunday. That's happening in Arizona, I want to say. Yeah, that's uh, This will be basically a two-person debate. And actually, the DNC and CNN have decided to cancel the audience component of it. It will be held, I guess, basically in an empty auditorium, an empty kind of amphitheater type space. There will be no press filing center, which is kind of an adjacent room where hundreds of reporters fly in from all over the country and file their stories and try to, you know, cozy up to campaign sources. There's no spin room in this case, which is a similar kind of space where campaign surrogates, people who have endorsed the candidates, campaign managers, members of the team go out and kind of mingle with the press and and give interviews and try to basically spin, you know, spin the debate in favor of their candidates. So there's going to be none of that. You know, what do you guys expect? How do you expect that will change the the debate come Sunday? Well, before I get to that, there is one thing I wanted to say about the Biden speech, given that it was an empty room, which was odd, but I thought that it was his best speech of the cycle and I thought the idea of going um, unifier, like the thanking Bernie Sanders thing made, if you didn't know the context and you were just watching it, you would think he was just named the nominee, which I mean, for all intents and purposes might be the case. But, you know, there was no spiking of the football. He didn't do that thing he sometimes does where he sounds like, I don't know, like gets really angry. Like everything he says is kind of <laughs> about a shout to convey his energy. He was pretty, you know, sedate, very... Uh, the whole thesis of the speech was the thesis of his campaign, which is, you know, we're bringing honor and decency back to the White House, um, incorporating the thing where he gives kind of shout outs to supporters of Klobuchar and Buttigieg and O'Rourke and Harris and Booker and all the people who have joined the team. Um, So it was interesting that he kind of got up and struck a note like that juxtaposed with, you know, Bernie choosing not to speak, being back home, which I think he was planning to go home anyway. I I don't think you can read too much into it, but the juxtaposition of those two situations did, I think, kind of play into the narrative of the night for sure. They just announced um, he's doing a presser in Vermont at 1 p.m., so about an hour from now. I mean, I doubt very much that's any sort of, uh, you know, 
I would be shocked if he's getting out of the race, but it's possible. I, I could see, you know, sometimes there may have even have been something like this in 2016. I can't remember now. Um, but sometimes a candidate in this position makes an announcement that is sort of like, I'm still running, still contest to go, but a sort of a resetting, which kind of implicitly makes clear a recognition that he's probably not going to win this race and some kind of, you know, campaigning with an eye to that about, um, I mean, A, sort of dialing down some of the criticism of the opponent, but also sort of signaling kind of like, you know, here's what we need you to do, Joe Biden, you know. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if that is 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 what they're going to do, or else they might just say, hey, you know, tough night for us. There's a debate in, what is it, Thursday? When is the debate? It's on Sunday evening, actually. Sunday, Sunday evening. You know, more contests. And it's, it's, uh, it's I, I, I do think, you know, um, everybody in the sort of the Democratic Party coalition right now has to handle this with a lot of finesse, both sides. Um, because, you know, I was just talking to a close friend of mine who is a, you know, a diehard Sanders supporter, um, was up in Michigan this week canvassing and, you know, all the stuff. And, uh, you know, this person's devastated, right? And um, as, as I'm sure that is the case for, you know, millions of his supporters, um, and this isn't someone who's like, you know, on Twitter, like, you know, doing like little snake emojis and stuff like that. If, if you're not someone on Twitter or not someone who kind of lives in that world, this is, we'll explain it some other time. Um, in any, you know, uh, but, but, you know, look, I mean, A, it is always very hard to go through this with a candidate you, you really believe in. And the reality is that 10 days ago, it's not just that Sanders was in the lead. It seemed like he was the nominee, you know, and, and, and there was all, there was all, you know, kind of like, okay, you know, shift into we're the nominee and thinking about the general and just like in, you know, two or three rapid fire hits, it's just done. And I'm not saying literally it's done, but I think most people can see the handwriting on the wall that it is extremely unlikely at this point that that Sanders is going to be the nominee and it is really critical for everybody who is not experiencing that kind of heartbreak and loss directly but particularly for Biden supporters to respect that that is hard and 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 also to give it space right to kind of like give people now i i I hope for most Sanders supporters, that's not like, you know, lashing out and, you know, threatening not to vote and stuff like that. But it, it is, it is very much in, in the non Sanders supporting democratic community and people who care about beating Donald Trump and especially for Biden supporters. And I think, I think the campaign knows this. I hope they know it to give that a lot of space. And, you know, to be to be um, respectful of that devotion and that sense of really acute loss, which is all the more intense when it's just like, 
you know, the, it, it, it's, it looked like it was over in the other direction right. 10 days ago. And I mean, you know, realistically, only three states had, had, had voted, all that kind of stuff. But the reality is that certainly a lot of Sanders supporters thought that. And frankly, a lot of everybody thought that. And that's just, that is just really hard. And everybody, um, A, just because it's a good way to be a person. But if you're, if you're, if you're, um, if your goal is beating Donald Trump, it is critical to treat a major faction within the party coalition in a way that is going to make it possible for them to invest in the general election. Maybe they're not going to be excited about Joe Biden. But be excited about beating Donald Trump or be excited about, you know, winning your congressional race or your Senate race. But everybody has to be on board. I think that kind of goes to what you were saying, Kate, about Biden's speech last night, trying to extend an olive branch to Bernie Sanders and in turn his supporters. And I'm curious what either of you or both of you think, you know, we mentioned briefly Jim Clyburn, whose endorsement before South Carolina was critical and, you know, in a way of of Biden's success there. Last night on NPR, he said, like I said, it's time to basically shut down the primary if if Bernie doesn't win any states. James Carville, the longtime Democratic strategist, went on MSNBC a short time later, said pretty much the same thing. Josh, I know you had a post on that this morning. What was your, what's your kind of take on those two prominent Democrats coming out and saying that? You know, that it's a big mistake and that they should shut up. Basically, I mean, you know, and and to be clear, yeah, I'm not saying that like, hey, it's still a race and I hope Bernie sticks it out. I think the race is basically over. And I think that sooner than later, Sanders should end his campaign. But it's got to come from that side. And I think we all know that it is. I said this in that post. I think we all know that the sense of the system being rigged. Of the, of the power brokers shutting out Sanders supporters, that is deep in the DNA of the Sanders movement. And to my perspective, a lot of it is just, you know, kind of self-serving, special pleading, all that kind of stuff. But it is there. It is deep. I mean, look, in, in a lot of Sanders supporters convince themselves of that in 2016 when the evidence was let like, oh, they made the debates be on Saturdays, right? You know, this, you know, really based on little, if any evidence, if now you've got like people like Jim Clyburn coming in and say, okay, done, done, this is done, canceling the debate. That is just crazy. That is crazy. It has to, you have to give what really seems like the losing side, the sort of the space to get there on their own, for Sanders personally to get there on on his own, and in sort of, you know, kind of literal and figurative conversation with his supporters to help them get there on their own, because this party needs to be brought back together. I think that's very true, and I wonder how much of these seemingly kind of like hasty urging to leave the party from this party elder stems from 2016, where some... Clinton supporters still maintain anger about how they feel Sanders and his supporters treated her eventual nomination, that he didn't get behind her fast enough or full-throatedly enough. 
Absolutely. Absolute, absolutely. Yeah. And believe me, I'm one of the people who think that. I, th- I don't think I don't think Sanders handled it well. I think he he fanned the flames of a rigged process and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I am, you know, when this is a, when we're in the mode where this is an argument, I'm on that side of the argument. I think he it was really part of his campaign. Uh, you know, kind of fanning this this feeling that it was rigged, that he'd been cheated, all that kind of stuff. And so my point in this case is that we can't have that happen again. And so at this moment, it is incumbent. And I think you're right, Kate. I think that is part of, that is one of the motivations. I just think it is very counterproductive because it just, it just seeds that feeling. And again, I mean, look, if, if, if Bernie Sanders, like two months from now is out there, like, you know, railing at Joe Biden and kind of, you know, then it's different, but you need to give it a little space. Well, not to mention that Sanders does have some leverage in this situation right now. You know, he's got what, like 35% steady, committed, passionate support. So, you know, if you're going to be kind of urging him to get out, I would do that with the carrot rather than the stick, you know, maybe start having conversations about him with tossing him some kind of administrative promises or bones or some kind of, you know, let's all get on the same page. How can I best serve you as the nominee and appeal to your people? Like whether or not that's even, you know, super genuine, but I don't think publicly trying to shame him out of the arena is a going to work or b going to do anything but really piss off the the section of the party that is really really super passionate about him and will be very useful for you know grassroots organizational efforts down the road like you said josh whether that be for biden or down ballot races yeah no it's 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 key and that's and that is that is absolutely right and um yeah, everybody, you know, look, at, at, at the end of the day, it is always on the, and again, I say this with all of the, I think Sanders really handled things badly in 2016, but the reality is it is always incumbent on the winners to, to start the process. The winners, I mean, the winners have won. They've already gotten all the fun stuff. And start that. And I would say for you know for our listeners who are who are either Sanders supporters or who come from the position that the, for lack of a better word, mainstream Democratic Party is has not moved enough to the left. Joe Biden is the consummate non-ideological politician, and in some key ways is, I wouldn't say more progressive than people think, but he is, he is the, he's the classic sort of median democratic politician. He, on policy, he will be wherever the consensus of the democratic party is. If the consensus of the democratic party moves over to being, you know, Medicare for all, he'll be for Medicare for all. It's not the consensus of the Democratic Party right now. I know people think that and they say, well, it has like, you know, 55% support among Democrats. That's not the consensus. My point is that he is, he is the, the consummate 
pushable politician. So it makes sense to push him. And, and pushing is not always like, you know, trolling on Twitter. It's, it's getting in, getting promises to do certain things. It's starting the conversation about what, what the agenda is going to be in a potential Biden administration about appointees. Because that point about being a very non-ideological politician, that makes appointees even more important. Joe Biden's big interests in a kind of a granular sense focus on foreign policy. You know, yeah, he's, you know, kind of big on the Violence Against Women Act. He's he's pretty big on guns, whatever. But that's his kind of his nitty gritty thing. So what really matters is who the and, and not even just the big cabinet secretaries. It's the people down a notch who do the who actually sort of turn the gears in an administration. So that's all really important. And, and um, you know, everybody needs to think about that. I yeah. do wonder at this point um, if we'll hear from Elizabeth Warren in the coming days, because, you know, I think she she played her cards pretty well when everyone was like, OK, who are you endorsing? And she's like, you know, I don't have to endorse right now. And she I mean, it's kind of good that she didn't because this race has been shifting drastically, you know, over a matter of days. So I wonder if we'll hear from her at all, though, or if she'll just stay by the sideline and try to work her influence in a more low-key kind of way. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, when, the day that she dropped out, she did say she needed to take some time to think about it and and make a decision. And at this point, if the race really is all but settled for Biden, maybe it makes sense for her to come out in support of him, or maybe she waits more towards the general election phase. And yeah, the ultimate goal is to beat Trump. Exit polls have shown over and over again that really that's what Democratic voters care most about, that, you know, everyone's going to be on the same page for that effort, it seems. Yeah. So let's let's shift gears a little bit, talk about the coronavirus. And Josh, I was wondering if you could kind of explain for our listeners a little bit about the decision-making just for TPM to go remote, how you see other either companies or institutions making that call. And then, you know, maybe we can shift a little bit towards just kind of other everyday life stuff. Should we be going out to eat at restaurants? Should we be riding on the subway if we need to get somewhere? All those kind of everyday life type things. Well, we started talking about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, any, any business is, is always in the, in, the, in the process of making contingency plans. Um, we, are, we are uniquely capable of shifting to remote operation. And, and um, you know, part of that is obvious. It's a, digi- you know, it's, a, it's a digital operation. It's a website that exists in, in, in the ether. It doesn't need to be distributed physically and all that kind of stuff. What may be less clear for readers is that for um, a little more than a decade, we have had an office in D.C. and an office in New York. And our bigger office is in New York. We have a smaller operation in D.C. Um, but one of the details about that is that our executive editor, who's the person who is running the editorial team, is based in our D.C. office. That's David Kurtz. And most of our editorial team is based in New York. Now, that's that, that just... Uh, was sort of a, an accident of the history of the organization. But one of the things that does is that 
an element of remote operation is already kind of embedded in the DNA of the organization because we're having to do a lot of our work over largely, um, uh, you know, chat a- a- apps between, you know, between New York and D.C. to some extent phone, but but largely that. And so that's the kind of thing you need to be able to do to to operate remotely. You need everybody to be able to be in contact. So um, one of the, one of the things that has always done is that even though about two thirds of us, and actually at the moment more than two thirds of us are based in our New York office, a huge amount of the interaction in the organization is through an application called Slack, which many of you are probably familiar with. It's one of the big um, you know, kind of organizational, uh, messaging applications for years, we use Skype and different things. Uh, but the point is, so even in our New York office, when everybody is sitting in about a, you know, 1800 square foot space, a huge amount of the converse of the communication is happening by Slack. So that is, it's, that just readily transfers to remote. Now, um, I personally am a big pro office person for reasons that have to do with kind of organizational culture and stuff like that. Um, in relative terms, we spend a huge amount of money on two offices and two of the uh, most expensive, you know, real estate markets in, in the country, in New York and D.C. But the reality is it's pretty straightforward to switch. So um, we started thinking about it in advance uh, and, you know, one thing, this was not why we did it, but it certainly, um, sharpened how I thought about it, that about three days ago, maybe four days ago now, basically over the weekend, the city of New York started saying in its daily press conferences, if you're an employer, employees who you can allow to work remote, you should start doing that now. So the city of New York is not mandating it, and they realize that lots of people cannot work remote. But they've been saying for several days, you should do it. So we are basically being told by the city of New York. This isn't something we just came up with or you know, something like, I mean, well, <laughs> let me backtrack. We did come up with it. But my point is, is that this is something that the city authorities in the city are telling us to do. And uh, it just makes sense. You know, m- most of uh, – most of, uh, most of the people who work at TPM are pretty young. Um, the, the beside David Kurtz and myself, uh, the oldest employees are in their early thirties. Um, most are in their twenties. So you know, relative risk is pretty low. But it's also a civic thing. Everybody. I mean, one of the things that has come up in the last, um, I would say, in the last twenty-four hours from a lot of public health experts is that there has been criticism of the public messaging that says, you know, most people go, you know, kind of go about their business, except for if you're high risk, in which case you should avoid crowds and stuff like that. But the reality is that even if you are not high risk to yourself, you need to do things that prevent general spread because there are people in society who are really endangered by this. And so, in a in a way, that was um, that was bad advice, because and this is you know I I have a post I'm working on about this, that th- the biggest things are 
many of the biggest things are things about solidarity and civic responsibility. That even if you're not in danger, you need to be acting in a way that prevents danger to other people, especially if you're someone who's, you know, very likely not to be severely impacted by this versus people who are likely to be, uh, you know, severely impacted by this. And there's even some things that, and again, this is what this post I've been, I've been sort of kicking around in my head is about. I think most of the people who read TPM, you know, you know about the prepper community and all that. And it's sort of this, you know, kind of radical individualist conspiratorial kind of thing that none of us want to be part of that. Certainly none of us want to be part of hoarding, which no one should be doing. But there are certain things like one of the things, if you look at, you know, kind of public health experts and people who really know about these things, one of the things they say is you should have some non-perishable foods in your home so that you could get by for a week or two. If there was some disruption of food or something like that, or say you do get sick and for you, it's just like, you know, kind of a bad cold or a flu. No one, no one wants to come into your house to bring you food because you're contagious. So think ahead and have some food on, 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 on standby. And, and the, the reason here is, and this is, I think, the really critical point. Again, some of this has become more obvious than it was a week or two weeks ago. But the point is not that, like, you know, the society is going to collapse and you're going to survive because you have, you know, a couple weeks worth of pasta. The point is, is that if things do get rough, public authorities are going to need to bring food to people who are in critical situations. So don't be in a critical situation yourself. Make sure that you can, that public authorities can, don't worry about you because there will people they need to worry about. So there are all these things that we do that are not about, you know, imagining a zombie apocalypse. And again, you're going to be the only person who survives because, you know, you, uh, uh, you know, kept all your bathtubs full and, and, and had like, you know, 500 cans of, of, of kidney beans or something like that. It's that act in a way that if things do get a little rough, that the crisis responders can focus on people who are really under threat and not you under threat because you didn't, you know, take the time to, to you know, buy a few, buy a few extras. Kate, I'm wondering uh, what your experience in D.C. has been. Uh, for our listeners who aren't aware, you recently relocated to D.C. You've been doing some reporting on Capitol Hill mm-hmm. where, you know, the population of lawmakers is relatively old. Nancy Pelosi's <laughs> yeah. in her 70s. A lot of, you know, senior members of Congress and the Senate are 60s, 70s, even a few up into their 80s. Uh, I know Pelosi has said, you know, there's no reason to close the Capitol at this point. I think they're still doing tours. As far as I know, yesterday, I think they were still doing that. Mm-hmm. Just from being up there, what what's it looked like? Have you noticed any kind of, has it been quieter? Has it been kind of business as usual? What's the scene been like? Um, I mean, keeping in mind that business as usual to me is the past week and two days. So it could have been different before then. But I mean, there's some little, you know, anecdotal type stuff, like there's Purell everywhere. And some of the senators make all the reporters who are in a scrum around them, like lather up while they're talking (laughs) and stuff. But um, 
you're right that the median age in Congress is quite old, especially in the Senate. And, you know, lawmakers are also traveling pretty much every week back to their home states or home districts and then back to D.C. And there's a lot of baby kissing and handshaking that's just part and parcel with the job. But, um, you know, as to the TPM D.C. operations, we're kind of playing it by when those institutions choose to close. Um, so right now, Tierney and I are still going to the Hill, um, still going to, you know, federal court. I was in the Supreme Court last week, um, and we're just kind of playing it by when those places feel that the threat is big enough to close, then we'll be in full quarantine. Um, but I would say it's a, especially on Capitol Hill, a the topic of conversation. I mean, every single scrum I've been a part of, the majority of the questions have been about coronavirus, whether that be capital operations itself or funding, you know, stimulus to offset the effects of it, uh, public health angle. But it definitely is at least on the absolute top of everyone's minds, even though the, the line still seems to be we're not at a place of where the crisis is dire enough that we're shutting it down yet. Right. Even uh, anecdotally at our TPM event last week, which was focused on the Democratic primary, we had a, a great panel of former TPM alums talking about that. It felt like even in the in the kind of cocktail hour beforehand that everyone just wanted to talk about coronavirus too. I mean, it was even kind of odd last night with the coverage of the primaries sort of shifted in a way. All day we were talking about coronavirus, the, the news networks are, you know, wall to wall with it. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden kind of like a switch flips and we it's on to the election. It's kind of a weird discordant kind of effect. Well, I think I think that's definitely true. And what's interest the reason why it's such the dominant story is because, I mean, you see how it affects almost every facet of our society, like large gatherings of people are, a, I mean, that's a daily occurrence for most people, you know, whether that be the grocery store or a campaign rally or voting in a primary. And then that's not even getting into like the supply chain stuff and everything that we get from China, plus now all these other countries that are being struck. And then you have the issue of who can come in and who can go out. All the meanwhile, you know, there are some like under, you know, little deeper threads of, you know, is this going to become a xenophobic thing because this disease originated in China and things like that. So, and then, you know, to top it all off, you have an administration in charge of this who has not shown great deafness really with anything. So an epidemic of this scale and with this degree of complication and then that requires some kind of delicacy politically. Um, I think people are probably even more panicked than they would be in your in a normal administration having yeah. an epidemic. That's true. Last week we had Trump come out, I think maybe one of his first press briefings on the coronavirus. I think it might have even been the first time he ever appeared in the in the White House press briefing room. Yeah, I think that's it's right. Kind of I think he had a blue. couple times before over three years. But yes, Was very it, yeah, rare. Very yeah, rare. Yeah. Said, oh yeah, we probably, you know, this isn't a big deal. We have a couple cases, but we'll probably expect to see those drop down to about zero pretty quickly here. And then last night the U.S. just passed the milestone of a thousand cases. So obviously it's headed... Clearly, the opposite cases direction. After, after like four or five days ago, we were maybe not even four or five days ago, maybe like 
three or four days ago, we were like at 100. Right. right. I mean, and it has grown super fast. Well, and also yeah. the fact that we're just not testing people. So it's hard to tell what's growing and what's, you know, it's good that more people are getting tested now. But, you know, it was we were um, my boyfriend and I were listening to a NPR piece on it this morning. And I didn't even know some details of this like that. Germany had um, developed a test for it before the U.S. did. But since we consider the CDC to be the be all end all, you know, we developed our own, which took more time. And then after that, some like labs and more local places, the CDC's test wouldn't wasn't working. So the CDC said, OK, just send your samples to us and we'll test them, which tax on more days, you know. And while this like brought us into February and that was kind of a month wasted and also the FDA took forever to approve the test so it's like you're just kind of like what's going on like why are we do we not think this is as serious as everybody else does or is this just a huge systemic breakdown you know i've actually this is something i've done some reporting on and it it's it's interesting because obviously we we are going to be trying to figure this part of this story out for weeks and months and and hopefully it will end up that it's not <laughs> a a screw up that that led to a, a lot of additional you know a lot of bad things happening, um, but from what I can tell, there there's really two issues, and it's the interaction between those issues. And the, and the funny thing is, it's really not the CDC that I think is the driving issue. So they start, they develop a test. There's technical problems with that test. Um, and as these things are explained to me, I mean, that's a bummer, right? CDC, you're kind of hoping it's world class. But developing a test for a brand new disease, you can have some issues. That was a recoverable problem because the U.S. has lots of test development and test creation and testing capacity. Lots and lots and lots. You have lots of states have their own kind of world-class labs. You have big research institutions that have it. So the CDC is not the only place. It's not that, you know, we could only rely on the CDC to, to create a test for us and they drop the ball. The key is that the FDA had to sign off on allowing other organizations to, uh, you know, to, to, to start stuff up. Now, under a normal, um, under normal circumstances, that's a good thing. You don't want some like, you know, someone who's, who's selling, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of health supplements, developing their own flu test. These things need to be checked and regulated and all that kind of stuff. But obviously, this was a crisis situation, and lots of those other organizations were coming forward and say, hey, let us do this, let us do this, and the FDA just wasn't. And that is actually still going on. Even today, if you watch the daily press conferences uh, by the city of New York and also the state of New York, and I assume this is happening in, in you know, local authorities talk, you know, giving press conferences across the country, the New York ones are the ones I'm focused on. Are, are they, the FDA has still not approved automated testing. So basically, as opposed to where it's, you know, kind of one person in a lab suit doing the test, where it's done by machines, that's still not being approved. And again, my sense is that 
there is, I don't think there is a substantive issue there. I mean, these are world-class labs. They know what they're doing. They are able to make reasonable decisions about, okay, we've got this, this is ready to go. It's still not happening. And so why didn't they, why, why did they kept every, you know, keep everybody else bottled up as I think the best we can tell is it was sort of a bureaucratic and leadership failure. CDC's running the test, FDA's charge of, of, of you know, approving tests. And those are both part of the Depart- Department of Health and Human Services. Someone needed to be looking from 30,000 feet and say, okay, we, we got a problem here. We got a problem with our test. Let's get out there and get ten other organizations working on tests, and and no one did that. And so that test thing went on and on and on, and it really seemed to go for like six weeks, where just, you know, there was a kind of a breakdown in communication, and that part again, the fact that there was, you know, maybe we'll find out that they had. Uh, you know, Brad Parscale designing the test and some ridiculous thing <laughs> happened. But I don't think it was that those people were trying to screw up. There was some issue and and technical problems happen. But dropping the ball on the other thing, that is really unforgivable. And my sense, I've actually working on a, a, a post about this last night that I think part of what happened is if you go back to as recently as like three or four weeks ago, the public messaging was not that, hey, we don't have enough tests, so so we can only test a few people. The messaging was the test is simply not indicated unless you are symptomatic, you've been to China, or you've been, you know, you're you live with someone from China, you have some close, you know, close thing. And, and again, they were, they were very clear on this. It's not necessary to test anybody else. And I suspect at some level that that messaging was, they were mirroring that messaging back to themselves. The message, the message they were telling everybody else is, you know, yeah, we're having some problems with the test, but we don't need to test more people. So it's not that urgent. And I think that the rest of the administration got that. And that's part of the reason why we got into this, this thing, because there was, there was a, um, maybe a week ago, there was an article in Politico where they first started saying, hey, it's not that it wouldn't be great to test a lot of other people. We don't have enough tests. So somehow or another, over that six weeks, the reality changed, but the message didn't change. And it's, that kind of stuff goes to the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. We're just about out of time. And we appreciate our listeners bearing with us as we kind of enter this new phase of the podcast. And it's good to see everyone virtually and <laughs> over the over the digital airwaves. And, and we'll be back again soon. Yeah. Uh, don't 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 forget uh, we are we are sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Go out and uh, get it. You can uh, order it to your compound um, <laughs> wherever wherever you are located. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Later, guys. Thanks. Thank bye. you. Bye.